Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very slow. all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. (laughs) Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girl Bomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results, made just for us. From the ultimate girl bomb grip to the professional grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girl Bomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb, available at Walgreens. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jim Morrison died at the age of 27, and he lived a life of celebrity that skirted surprisingly close to irrelevance. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Three would be the number of bandmates who held down the fort, kept the rhythm going, kept the music engaging, all while their frontman made unpredictable, sometimes polarizing moves. Another three would be the number of weeks it would take after the Miami concert disaster for tens of thousands of teenagers to organize a public rally to protest Jim Morrison in the doors and all the indecent things that they stood for. Twelve more would be the number of shows by the doors that would be canceled in March of 1969 alone. The cancellations rolled on into April, and their spring tour wouldn't last more than one show. Another four would be the number of times each month the rumor of his untimely death hit the wires, the papers, or the phones. The Doors manager got real good at playing a weekly game of Monday morning Jim Morrison Deadpool. Three more would be the number of federal agents that gave Jim and his friend Tom Baker a personal escort off a plane and straight into a jail cell in Phoenix. And two more would be how many years to the day that Jim Morrison had left to live after Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones was found dead at the bottom of his swimming pool. On this, our seventh episode of season two, protests, death rumors, jail cells, and Jim Morrison, lost in fantasy. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
kids started arriving at the Orange Bowl in the morning. They came in pairs, and they came in groups, and they came solo, they came on foot, and they came in cars. Word had been passed around town, kids talked to other kids, and they got on the phone and spread the word. Just west of Little Havana, the Orange Bowl was the place to be that day. After an hour or so, the steady trickle of bodies turned into a rush. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, teenagers, adults. It was a mostly cloudy day, but at nearly 80 degrees, the complaints were few and far between. No one thought to complain about the weather in Florida. They all had other complaints on their minds. They thought of the dreaded Florida man. He had risen from the swamp, grown out his hair, ingested psychedelics, woke up this morning and got himself a beer. He stumbled away from his homeland, vowed to never return. The residents of Florida breathed a collective sigh of relief. Maybe Florida man would go bother someone else for a while, be someone else's problem. He stumbled drunkenly across the country, went out west and then turned around and took aim. He mocked all of them, called them backwards, called them hayseeds from the safe distance of his Hollywood perch. The Florida man, calling them hayseeds. And then he returned. Florida man dragged his bloated, bearded, holier-than-thou body back to the place he had forsaken. The prodigal son, back again. And the Florida man, looking to haunt them all again. Make fools of them, tear them down, ridicule them. He managed to walk onto that stage in Miami, drunk and high on the authority he had granted himself. And he did what the Florida man always did. He shocked them, scared them, humiliated them, told them they were all stupid. And then he undid his pants and left absolutely nothing to the audience's imagination. And the Florida man was on the mind of every kid who walked into the Orange Bowl that morning. Sunday morning, March 23rd, 1969. Before too long, there were 30,000 people gathered together. Throngs of teens sat in the stands. They stood in clusters on the field. They weren't there for a Miami Dolphins game. They weren't there for a rock and roll show. They weren't there for a love-in or a be-in. They were there to voice their disapproval of Dirty Jim Morrison and show the world that Miami was a community of wholesome, squeaky-clean do-gooders. A God-fearing town, thank you very much, that was well-aligned with Judeo-Christian morals and standards. If people thought that Miami welcomed that kind of filth with open arms, well then, you got another thing coming, Buster. Flower children need not apply. No long-haireds, no weird dressers, no counterculture freak flag wavers. Go back to California with that progressive nonsense. Certainly none of that obnoxious Doors music, and no Jim Morrison either. He was the Florida man they would all rather soon forget. The 30,000 strong were like 30,000 clones of Captain Morrison, Jim's dad, the older guard, the way it used to be, the way it was, anti-change, anti-smut, anti-provocation. In the eyes of Jim, they were teens who had yet to separate themselves from their parents' generation, from their values and antiquated belief system, stunted Florida youth. The rally for decency was about as far away as you could get from the human being or Woodstock or any other mass gathering of American youth culture in the late 60s. And to drive that point home, the celebrity guests they managed to score were all similarly stuck in a different era and different ideological mindset. Their big get was Jackie Gleason, a bastion of old-school madman-era masculinity, and well into his 50s. In addition to playing Ralph Cramden in The Honeymooners and his then-current role as host of The Jackie Gleason Show, Gleason was a prolific recording artist in his own right. Since the early 50s, he had been releasing a string of instrumental orchestrated mood music, musical wallpaper, he called it. Saccharine strings, weepy melodies, albums with self-evident titles like Music for Lovers Only. 
1969 alone, he'd released no less than five records, including a Christmas album and a tribute to Irving Berlin. Gleason represented the older, less weirder America, the one where men were men and dames was dames. A pre-Elvis America, no long hairs, no weirdos, no freaks, clean family values, shiny white teeth, wholesome humor. You know, like socking up a housewife to the kisser kind of humor. He looked out at the crowd gathered inside the stadium and sent a conservative shot across the bow. I believe this kind of movement will snowball across the United States and perhaps the world. Gleason had musical and moral help from the likes of the antiseptic pop trio The Letterman as well as Anita Bryant. A former Miss Oklahoma, Bryant was a singer who had recently joined Bob Hope on his USO tour. She would later serve as the public figurehead for Save Our Children, the first organized political opposition to gay rights that would successfully lead an effort to overturn a Dade County ordinance that banned discrimination based on sexual orientation. 1969 was her year. While peace seekers convened in Woodstock, Neil Armstrong walked the moon, and the Beatles released Abbey Road, Anita Bryant became the spokesperson for the Florida Citrus Commission, a crusader for fascist heteronormality and oranges. The rally ensured that the Doors controversy stayed in the news and served to shame those that didn't get on board the decency train. It even impressed Richard Nixon, who wrote the rally's organizers on presidential letterhead to commend their effort and their conviction. After the rally, the new rumors started. New rumors that the very person the rally for decency was targeting would no longer be able to give them another reason to hold another rally. The word on the street was that Jim Morrison had died while on vacation in Jamaica. Something he ate, that's what one person heard. Someone else said it was drugs, and someone else said he drowned. Whatever it was, whatever happened to Jim Morrison, the people who had attended the rally for decency felt validated, felt like God was on their side. That's God punishing him, one of the decency train riders told another. The sort of thing she'd say if someone stubbed their toe after cursing, that's God punishing you. If God was punishing Jim Morrison, so be it. That was on Jim Morrison. The decency train riders weren't gonna lose sleep over it. Good riddance. They said Jim Morrison was dead. It had actually happened this time. It was inevitable. Only a matter of time, and it finally happened. The way he lived his life, it was a wonder that it hadn't happened already. It was a miracle that he'd made it this far. Did you hear? Jim Morrison was dead at 25 years old. Rumors of Jim's death were a weekly occurrence at this point, and the Doors manager, Bill Siddons, came to expect a routine Monday morning scare. Jim would ramp up the drinking and partying over the weekend. And the more he drank, the more he partied, and the more he partied, the more random strangers would enter his orbit. The stories would write themselves. Jim choked on his own vomit. Jim wrapped his car around a telephone pole and was killed on impact. Jim fell out of a window. Jim got into a scuffle on Sunset Boulevard and got his face beat in. He didn't make it. And the most popular one 
was that Jim had disappeared at some point over the weekend and no one knew where he was. Maybe he was in the desert again. Maybe he was in a girl's apartment. Maybe he was on the beach. And maybe he went back to Florida. Maybe he crawled back into whatever primordial hole he came from. But this time was different. Bill had a funny feeling about this one. The Doors press agent, Leon Barnard, and Jim's friend, Alan Roney, had both told Bill about some recent premonitions they had of Jim's death. They each told Bill separately, which was odd. They told him about dreams, dreams where a rumor of Jim's death became a reality. They told him about these feelings, feelings stuck deep in their gut that couldn't shake loose. They didn't want to overreact, to cry wolf. But if there was a time to freak, now was it. Everyone felt a chill in their bones, a chill that they couldn't warm up. And at a time like this, when the whispers got louder and everyone got that funny feeling that they struggled to describe, Bill had a call in the Gonzo Intel. He had a lean on Jimbo. On the one hand, Jimbo always had a clear sense of where Jim was, an idea of where he had been last night and who he had been with, almost like the two shared a strange psychic connection. On the other hand, reaching out to Jimbo meant inviting him into your world. Jimbo was the kind of guest who would overstay his welcome before he would even walk through the door. He'd crack open a frosty cold one, take the seat you had just been sitting in, hold court and regale you with his swashbuckling tales of drunken glory. Bill had been witness to this one too many times. At the time, Jimbo hung out at Stephen Still's LA mansion for one of his legendary impromptu jam sessions back in 66. Rick James was there, one of Neil Young's bandmates in the Minor Birds, and Jimbo remembered Rick James passing out on the floor of the jam room after all the joints had been passed around and smoked. And the whole floor of the room was full of passed out people, in fact. Musicians, girlfriends, random dudes from the neighborhood who just wanted to watch. Jimbo said he just sat there, legs crossed, posture straight, and dug the sharp edge of a jagged wine bottle into his forearm. He had smashed it open the quickest way to get to what was inside. And then, sitting there, cross-legged in a sea of passed out people, he acted on the urge to slice his forearm open. And the blood dripped down the length of his arm to his balled up fist where it hung dramatically and fell drop by drop by drop onto the floor. He said this cat Rick James woke up while he was in the middle of slicing himself and freaked, freaked the fuck out. Jimbo, freaking out, the super freak. Or there was the time he saw Satan walking along one of the canals in Venice. Dark leather trench coat, dark sunglasses, giant eyebrows, and no joke, a tail protruding from the bottom of his coat. A goddamn motherfucking tail, no joke. If that wasn't Satan, then the sky wasn't blue, Jimbo told him. Or the time Jimbo found a bust of Aleister Crowley at a Hollywood flea market. He bought it with Jim in mind and brought it to the door's rehearsal space. He was convinced that the thing was imbued with an evil essence, an otherworldly essence, perhaps put there by Crowley himself. The clay bust featured Crowley's head atop of what looked like a poorly spun pottery dome. It was eerie in its remedial design. But when the band left it out in the rehearsal room, things got weird, and their faces would all go long, their eyes would dilate. They would play like they never played before. Fiery riffs, wicked fills, killer grooves, and Jim would be full of confidence and his lungs full of air. He'd go on the tips of his toes, extend his arms to the heavens, and he was the ideal version of Jim Morrison, the rock god. But as they all played their best, their career best, honestly, and it was a shame that no one but Jimbo was there to witness it, they would each feel the life being slowly sucked from them. They could feel the life leaving from their nostrils, between their teeth, out from their ear canals. Their eyes would go black and one by one they would lose their energy. Their knees would buckle. They would stop playing, but the windows would keep on rattling. 
Something blew around the room, even though the windows were all closed. Something blew around the room, looking for a way to get out. Jimbo was there. He saw it all happen. Jim made him hide the Crowley bust in a closet, stifled the bad juju until a time when it could be channeled properly. It would reappear in 1970 on the back cover of 13, the band's first compilation album. Bill knew these Jimbo stories, and he knew he'd probably hear them again. So he steeled himself and headed over to Jimbo's apartment. Jimbo didn't pay his phone bill, and so his phone had been disconnected. Bill had no way of getting in touch besides showing up on his doorstep. Even when Jimbo's phone was in service, the guy never answered it anyway. What was the use having a phone bill, thought? If he didn't answer it or pay the bill, what was the point? When Jimbo answered Bill's knock on the door, he smiled. Bill rarely paid a visit to his apartment, and it made him feel like one of the guys when someone from the Doors crew came round. Billy boy, Jimbo exclaimed, and Bill could smell the beer on him, today's beer as well as yesterday's beer. And Jimbo opened the front door wide, and before Bill could ask him about Jim's whereabouts, he saw him. There he was, Jim. Jim was sitting on a chair in Jimbo's place, one leg crossed on top of the other, open can of bud in his hand, resting casually on his knee. Well, I woke up this morning, got myself a beer. Bill stood silent, struck dumb. How, what the, how long had Jim been at Jimbo's place? Thrillium, Jim yelled when he saw Bill standing in the doorway. Join us, brother, let's celebrate. Another fucking day in paradise. Jim raised his beer up, he was ready to toast. The future's uncertain and the end is always near. And Bill didn't know where to start. Did Jim know the FBI was looking for him, that there were warrants out for his arrest, that the door's career, as he and everyone else knew it, was effectively over? Jim, I don't know how to put this to you, Bill told him, but you're dead. Jim had to get his shit together, and Bill was angry enough that he was gonna be the one to grab Jim by the scruff of his neck, drag him kicking and screaming back to reality, and do what had to be done. No matter what Jim thought, no matter how much he protested, now's not the time for your fantasy. And so it was that Jim Morrison returned to the real world, and in April 1969, surrendered to the FBI. The next day, he was released on $5,000 bail, and if America wouldn't have him, perhaps Mexico would. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. 
Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you, because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. The doors had barely stepped off the plane and the hands were all over them. Hands everywhere. They reached, grabbed, clawed. The hands yearned for contact, to touch the hem of Jim's garment to touch any of the four doors, but to touch Jim the most. When they succeeded, the touch sent a ripple of electricity back to their bodies, validation of contact. The frantic human contact made Jim feel anointed. He extended his arm, touched flesh to flesh, imagined a ceremony with oil and scripture and hymns, pomp, circumstance, ritual. He was theirs, he would take their burdens, their fears, their sins. Till the heavens stop the rain, till the stars fall from the sky. He'd take it all and carry it up on stage, jettison the load with inspired performance. Whatever was left over after the show, he'd drown in booze. Jim and the band didn't notice as the crew got the customary shakedown in customs by a couple of important-looking locals who never properly identified themselves. In lieu of searching all their gear, they stuck their hands out and quietly demanded money. Everyone wanted something. The hands near the doors kept coming as the band walked towards their chauffeured limousines that had been provided for them. Hands reached out, clutching pens, albums, photos, autograph hounds, flashbulbs snapped all around them. So many hands. The people were shouting, Jim, mira aquí, por favor. The welcome in Mexico City was unlike any welcome the band had remembered receiving. And after months of getting the cold shoulder in America, it felt like relief, redemption. Mexico City reanimated the fantasy. Mexico City put Miami and Jamaica in the rearview mirror. Adoration, chauffeurs, assistants, bodyguards, armed guards at the gated hotel, bags of cocaine, rum, tequila, beers, mushrooms, unannounced visits backstage by teenage girls and politicians, sometimes both at the same time. In Mexico, the doors were outsiders, celebrities, shamans, long-haired and wild-eyed. They were magical, mystical, norteamericanos. Even the son of Mexico's president, Gustavo Diaz Ordez, partied with the band backstage at the forum flanked by bodyguards and his own groupies. He waltzed into the dressing room, flashy suit, dark sunglasses, toothy smile, a bottle of bubbly in one hand, and on fuego chicas hanging from his other arm. Don't you love them madly, Jim thought. And the bottle was popped open, and then another bottle appeared, and another, and another, and bags of white powder hit the tables, and then the state-approved backstage party really got started. The Forum was a supper club that seated about a thousand people. There were more elaborate plans for the Doors to play a bullring, benefits for the UN, and the Red Cross, a free concert in the park, and 
television shows. But behind the scenes, Bill Siddons was trying to keep up with the changes, trying to salvage what he could as their plans went to shit. And the free show in the park would be too dangerous. The band would be surrounded by people and the cops couldn't guarantee a safe way out. And they didn't get all the signatures they needed for the bull ring. Grand plans faded away with a shrug. At least they still had the form. On the outside wall of the form, there was a huge mural of Jim's face, measuring 15 feet tall by 15 feet wide. It imagined his curly locks as swirls of Van Gogh-esque art. Larger than life, Jim stood in front of the mural, bearing some resemblance to the painting, but looking like a witness protection version of himself. Bushy beard, dark sunglasses. The Doors had been trying to play Mexico for a while, but the stars refused to align until now. Shows had been planned, announced, and then canceled. And they didn't file the right permits, they didn't grease the right palms, and the agreed-upon deals changed at the last minute because, well, because they could. And the Doors could either play ball or play in the States. One of their planned appearances the previous summer was canned when it was rumored that students were planning to overthrow the government in a rock concert that would draw thousands of kids was deemed unwise. They came within an hour of full-blown revolution, and everyone was glad that the Doors weren't in the middle of that mess. It was a big deal, Mexico City. The Doors were one of the first American rock bands to play Mexico City. Jim puffed out his chest and walked the city streets, and the assigned bodyguards trailing him at a safe distance. He puffed out his chest and walked the walk of a justified man, an exonerated man. Mexico gave him life. The sensation of new life flowed through him when, in the summer of 69, the Doors finally began to play shows again. Time heals all wounds, they say, and concert promoters and venue owners were starting to forgive and forget. Plus, they weren't born yesterday. They knew that the combination of the Doors' ongoing controversy and their absence from stages and airways for months only increased the demand for their return. Everyone stood to be a winner if they started booking shows again. And then, Brian Jones, founding member of the Rolling Stones, died. Found dead at the bottom of his swimming pool, 27 years old. When Jim first heard about it, he immediately thought of the recent events in Jamaica how death seemed to lurk right around the corner in a darkened room. Brian's death shook Jim. It gave him pause. He was afraid the whole world would go dark again, that he'd feel that wind squall kick up in his head, that the lightning would flash outside his window and he'd be on the other side. He heard the lightning crack at a distance. He was scared to turn his head in the direction of the sound, and the ground rumbled. It rumbled so hard he would have sworn it had split open right beneath his feet, but he wouldn't look down. He closed his eyes tight to make it all go away. The oncoming storm, Brian, death. Prior to Brian's death, Jim had spent some time with Mick Jagger, and they relaxed in Jimbo's room at the Alta Cienega Motel. Mick and the Stones wanted to produce some big theatrical American rock shows that year, and he needed advice. Jim was the architect of the big theatrical American rock show, so they talked, and Jim asked Mick about Brian. Like Jim, Brian had drug and drink problems, run-ins with the law, legal matters. Brian seemed a kindred spirit to Jim, a like-minded follower of the zero-fucks-given school of thought. Mick confided to Jim that it may not be too long before Brian was no longer a rolling stone. Jim said he'd talk to him. Either they'd both pull each other back on track, or else they'd aid in completely derailing one another. He never did. Jim regretted it. He wrote a poem called Ode to L.A. while thinking of Brian Jones, deceased, and passed out copies to the audience before shows in the summer of 69. 
All those ghosts he never saw floating to doom on an iron candle. He let the thoughts of mortality work their way out of him in his art. And then he was back to being invincible, undeniable. Back in America, Jim couldn't get out of his own way. Despite being out on bail from the Miami incident, he just couldn't help himself. And he'd work his way back into the FBI's handcuffs for too long. Tom Baker threw a peanut at the stewardess. Couldn't help himself. She was cute. He was drunk. She didn't notice at first. Tom giggled and elbowed Jim Morrison sitting next to him on the flight. Watch, he whispered. Tossed another peanut from the airline's complimentary peanut bag at the hardworking, unsuspecting stewardess as she tried to make her way down the aisle with snacks and drinks. It beamed her right in the back of the head. Direct hit. What a dick. This time she felt it. She turned around and shot a disapproving glance at Tom. She wasn't amused in the least. Those two had been making noise and disrupting staff and other passengers before the plane even got off the runway. Tom giggled uncontrollably and pointed at Jim. It was him, Tom mouthed from a distance. Honestly, it was this jackass. Jim gave the stewardess a thousand-yard stare from his window seat. He stared at her orange corporate-issue jacket and skirt and wished the skirt were shorter. He wanted to see more leg. Took a sip of his gin and tonic and tried to imagine her without the skirt on at all. Still with the long-distance leer, the stewardess shook her head and continued to work the aisle. Tom Baker was an actor, not the English Tom Baker who would star in Doctor Who, but the American Tom Baker, who went from a role in Andy Warhol's I, a Man, to a series of relatively worthless B-movies in Hollywood like Ghetto Freaks and Candy Strike Nurses. More importantly, Tom was one of Jim's go-to drinking buddies in LA, and the trouble they would get into together approached Jimbo levels of madness. Jim and Tom were flying from L.A. to Phoenix to catch the first show of the Rolling Stones' 1969 U.S. tour, their first American tour in years. In typical Jim and Tom fashion, the duo started drinking at the airport bar and continued drinking well into the flight, and they fed off of one another. Jim would drink even more than usual around Tom, and Tom would get the balls to be even more cavalier and shocking around Jim. It was a toxic pairing. Tom raised his hand in the air and whistled in the stewardess's direction. Hey, hot legs, can I get a refill sometime? And then Jim said, Yeah, bring those legs over here, baby doll. Tom kept going. My friend here is thirsty, and he gets real unruly when he's thirsty. Why don't you come bring this backdoor man something to suck on, to wet his lips? And the stewardess purposely didn't turn around or respond. She'd had enough of their drunken pestering, and they'd just have to wait. But Tom wasn't waiting. He fished around in his glass for the last two remaining ice cubes and plucked them with the ends of his fingers. He sent the ice cubes flying, the throw a little harder than before since the stewardess had made her way a little further away from their seats. One of the ice cubes hit her in the hand as she was pouring a drink, and then the other one plopped into the cup she was pouring it into. She made a beeline for the front of the plane. 30 seconds later, she was back with the pilot. And the pilot was both stern and frazzled and tried to keep his voice at a reasonable volume. He told Jim and Tom to cut the shit. He told them there would be no more alcohol for them until they reached Phoenix. And he reminded them of the FAA directive from earlier in the decade that prohibited passengers from interfering with crew members. If they wanted to keep it up, they could face a maximum of 10 grand in fines and 10 years in prison. And no, 
crew is not joking. The pilot went back to flying the plane, and the stewardess went back to waiting on passengers. Now Tom was irritated. They weren't going to serve them anymore. What the fuck was this? Fucking high school geometry class? He was a goddamn adult. He paid for a seat on this goddamn plane. Well, actually, Jim had paid for it, but that wasn't the point. And he wanted another goddamn drink. It was another stewardess that walked by their seats when Tom reached his hand out. Jim had his eyes on this girl's skirt, too, and Tom must have been zeroing in on the same area. She was pushing her cart by Tom's aisle seat, and his hand went right for her ass. He navigated it under the skirt and grabbed at her, felt her leggings and panties bunch up in his fists. Come on, sister, help a brother out, Tom hollered, sounding the wounded animal cry of a really shitty B-movie actor. Jim howled like a wolf taunting a full moon. The girl shrieked and slapped Tom's hand away. The pilot was back. The pilot didn't want to be back. The pilot fully expected that the first time he talked to these jokers would be the last. He was mistaken. He told them that he didn't make emergency landings for assholes, that they would land in Phoenix in about 15 minutes. And when they did, Jim and Tom would allow everyone to deboard the plane. They would hang tight. They had earned themselves a personal escort off the aircraft. The drunk duo did as the pilot instructed. And then they sat there, aisle seat and window seat the effervescent buzz of the booze wearing off and headaches needling their way in. And then their own personal escort stepped onto the plane. Fuck. Federal agents. Goddamn U.S. Marshals. Jim went all in. Hey, man, are you here to give us our own personal escort to the Stone Show? He could barely finish the sentence before starting to choke on a stifled cough. And there would be no Stone Show for Jim and Tom. There would be a cold jail cell floor where they would sober up overnight feel like shit in the morning, and there would be charges of drunk and disorderly conduct and interfering with a flight. The next day they posted bail. Jim paid for both, $5,000 total. The money was the easy part. Jim could post bail all day, but now he was 0 for 2 with the feds. Now the fantasy would have to work overtime. The Miami charges, and now the Phoenix charges. Not quite 26 years old, and Jim Morrison was rich and known the world over. He was also at risk of spending the rest of his 20s and 30s looking at the world from behind bars. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Right, the 27 Club is scored and co-written by myself, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and editor on the show. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, which are all available for you to binge right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to the 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about 27 Club. And as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other show, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at Disgracelandpod. Rock and roll.
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. 